show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. When I started this podcast last year, I made a list of about 80 or 90 names that I had hoped would be willing to come on the show and have a chat with me. And quite honestly, folks, I had no idea if any of them would say yes. Even now, I think we're like 35 or 40 episodes in. I'm so surprised that people are willing to come on and give their time and share the way they do. One of the names I knew I wanted was Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. And Dr. Brenda is my guest today. I loved this conversation with Dr. Brenda. If you're not familiar with her, uh, she's an Associate Professor of Reconciliation Studies at Seattle Pacific University. She's written multiple books. She just wrapped up uh, the final draft of a book that's coming out next year on Esther. She's a powerful prophetic voice of reconciliation, and I think um, she's a voice that is needed more and more today. I love the challenge she gives to us on this episode. And I began by just asking her on whether she was surprised by how much we still need reconciliation work here in 2019 and what her reaction was to some of the events over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think I feel both, actually. This weird kind of my hopes were high. I do the work of reconciliation, and most of my work has been with white evangelicals um, across the country where I've been invited to speak at churches and conferences, Christian colleges and universities. And there's kind of like um, this sense that reconciliation, diversity, multi-ethnic ministry is in vogue. So, right? So I literally had, I think, the notion that this interest in having people like me come and speak and make sure that we were part of the platform was a, an earnest desire to engage this, to learn about this, to try to, as a church, grapple with this. So for me, the shock came at seeing how overwhelmingly that was not true that people were more interested in having the conversation. But when it came down to boots on the ground, how we live, people, that didn't translate. So it was like, yeah, we should have a woman speaker. Yeah, we should have an African-American, a Native American, a Latino, you know, you name it. We should have diversity on our stage. So we've learned that we should put on that show. But when it comes to what it really means in the deepest sense of the word, how we vote, where we live, what policies we're concerned about, that did not translate. And that broke my heart. It didn't just shock me, it broke my heart. Yeah. I, I, I think one of the biggest challenges of, um, let's just broadly talk about white evangelical suburban type churches, it's very difficult to get us to care about something that doesn't affect us. Isn't that one of the biggest challenges you face is making us like I, when I've been in dialogue with some African-American and Latino brothers and sisters, I've asked them, um, make us pay for something. It has to cost us in order for us to care about it. Where have you seen that really work? Um, I think generally people have to have some connection, you know, and so I can think of a story of a person. He, he, he's white. Um, I don't know him personally. I was at a conference in Michigan and he was sharing that he and his wife adopted a son who is African-American and he and his son were driving in the car and they were coming back home from something and got pulled over by police. Um, his son was pulled out of the car and, um, 
the father was like, hey, 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 that's my son. Now he's a white guy saying, hey, that's my son. The police didn't believe him, kind of whatever. Um, it wasn't until that happened to his son that the trauma of watching his son spread at the, you know, on the hood of a car while he's pleading to say, really, no, that's my son, that it became a palpable, real, not just uh, people are kind of whining about, you know, situations that happen. And if they had just done what the police had said to do, that would not have happened to them. This man watched it happen to his son and became at that point, it was personal. Now it wasn't the kinds of stuff that we can debate and reason away. It had become something that was his lived experience. And his lived experience caused him then to care about the experience of other people who didn't look like him. So now my son mattered. He cared about other people's children because he cares about his own child. Yeah. I, I was in a clergy gathering for our state and uh, there was an African-American uh, female pastor, just a powerhouse of a woman. We were both teaching our teenage sons to drive at the same time, both 16. And she was sharing with tears how every day she checks the lights on the car before he leaves. And I was then sharing with tears. It's never crossed my mind. Like, even if my son got pulled over, I just know 10 and 2 and he'll be fine. It, it really was a, as someone who thought I was pretty aware, it was a stark moment for sure. Yeah. So I think it has something to do with the communities that we've created as churches. We've created affinity groups where people who are very similar in our like of music, the languages we speak, there's this sense that we have created church almost as a place where we're comfortable and so we're rarely uncomfortable. And if people are from a different racial or ethnic background, they're generally still a part of our socioeconomic educational class. And so it's hard to be in that kind of an echo chamber and hear the stories and the realities of other people, like you heard of the woman who checks the lights on the car, because something that small, that should never lead to anybody being killed, could be the death of her son. Yeah. I went to seminary in my 20s and I had the incredible fortune of going to a diverse seminary that who, whose intention was to massively broaden our understanding. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember having to make the shift from understanding poverty through an individualistic lens to a systems and structures lens. And then therefore, of course, making that same shift with justice. Um, that's a hard shift, I think, also for some white evangelical churches are you encouraged or are you seeing any progress in that way? Uh, microcosms. And so I would know I'm not encouraged. <laughs> no, I'd be lying if I said I was encouraged. I'm real. I've grown. I've grown up. This whole thing has kind of taken all the rose colored glasses off my eyes. Um, I, I'll tell you this. I had a, a person who I don't know, white male on Facebook, who said, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses. And I'm sure he did. <laughs> That's exactly what I said on Facebook. I'm sure you did, you know? And, and, I, and I can tell you, I thought that by being nice, by being patient, by, you know, being optimistic, 
and non-threatening, that that would win people over, that people would say, she has no agenda. She's not trying to hurt anybody. She's not some angry person with a chip on her shoulder. This is biblical for her. She's really trying to open us to what the word of God calls the people of God to do. I've come to find out now that people aren't just motivated by that. They're not motivated by what the word of God says. And that's just the truth. They're not. They're not motivated by those kinds of me being nice enough. And so now I've just decided to tell the truth about things. I, I don't believe that we get the systemic nature of things. And I think it's because we've reduced reconciliation to making friends across racial and ethnic and cultural lines. So that if I can say that I've adopted a child from another culture or my best friend is from, you know, another country or that I, you know, can eat with chopsticks, you name it, that that somehow makes us multicultural or the worship band at our church plays songs in different languages. I could care less. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I am now looking for the kinds of systemic change that your seminary demanded of you to learn. And I think that unless we begin to think in that way, we're coming at very complex issues as Christians with very simplistic answers or solutions. Well, and, and, and don't you think, I, I guess it's probably what I was getting at before too, like as long as the systems and structures benefit us, it takes a massive amount of awareness and theological worldview to overcome that benefit to make actual change yeah yeah so now i really i'm becoming more of a follower of jesus in the deepest sense of the word jesus said that the way to the kingdom was going to be narrow and the and the path to destruction was going to be broad and wide and more people would choose it i 80 percent really that's a lot of people and i was gobsmacked. I could not believe that so many Christians, and this is not for me about political party. I know people on both sides of the aisle that I have great respect for. It was more the message that was 80% okay with us. That's what bothered me. I thought, really, out of the scriptures that we know, we justify this. We're okay with this. That's all right with our faith. That's what would what, what absolutely caused me to realize this is not biblical because there's no way to biblically square this. This has something to do with power and privilege and holding on to it. And that's what we will then put in front of our faith. And I now understand that Jesus is right. Fewer people will choose that place of letting that go. And a greater number of people will find some way to rationalize why they do that because I think it's in our human nature. God have mercy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I moved here in the early 90s from Western Australia. And and what I remember is is those same people weren't okay with it in the early 90s. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that too. Okay. Well, you're bringing some thunder for us, Dr. Brenda. So um, p- part of why I was really hoping you'd come on the show is you do a unique work that none of my other guests have talked about. This reconciliation work coming to majority culture, bringing a prophetic word in the name of Jesus. This is unique work. And I also, I'm very aware this is not your only work, but what we're interested on this show is what it costs you in relation to your well-being, your anxiety, your emotional health. Could you give us an example of, of when you walk into an encounter, whether you're either afraid or you wake up worrying about it, something like that. 
Yeah, I've got a couple. I'll tell you this one because it's the most recent. You know that I'm on staff at a church here in my neck of the woods of the country, and I love, love, love my church. It's a multiracial church. It's a multicultural church. It's an intergenerational church. I just love it. I love where we are. I love what we stand for, and I love what we do. The Sunday after Charlottesville, the whole, you know, you will not replace us, tiki torches, synagogues being held under siege, all of that. Um, Very, very frightening. Um, A woman killed by a white supremacist who ran into a crowd with his car, killed this, this, this dear woman, Heather. And, you know, just horrific, horrific, horrific to watch it happening in the streets of our country, of this country. That happened in the following Sunday, and it was very close to a Sunday. I can't remember now what day of the week it was, but soon after was Sunday, and I was the preacher for that Sunday morning. This literally happened. So we gather as pastors, probably at your church, you do the same thing, and we talk about, you know, kind of are there things we should be prayerful about as we, you know, get ready to leave in in worship. And uh, the person who was going to do the morning opening prayer, the invocation, he's white, he's a good, good guy, uh, our youth pastor, and he said, you know, I'm just going to repent on behalf of white America for white supremacy. And so we agreed we would do that. I knew that I was going to preach. Um, and so we we prayed together. We believed God together. We went downstairs to, to start worship service. And during the worship, you know, the songs were being sung. A young white man, I'd say he must have been in his maybe early 30s, uh, had on a black jacket. He had on um, sunglasses, but he didn't have them on his eyes. He had the sunglasses on the top of his head. And he came in and walked straight to the front of the church, straight to the front of the sanctuary and stood at a chair right in front of the pulpit. And he kept looking over his shoulder as if he was looking for somebody or, you know, it was like, and he wasn't singing any of the songs. He was just kind of standing there. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience where a person's physical presence, something about them just strikes you as odd, you know? And I and so I kind of and I felt it palpably in my body, like, huh, you know. Um, and so I whispered to the pastor next to me, he's Korean, and I said, Do you know the person to your right on, you know, in, in the middle of there? And he said, No, I'm watching him too. And so now I can't worship, I can't sing, <laughs> you know. Um, and I'm really feeling nervous about it. Um we have some folks who are security at our church. And so I kind of walked over and mentioned it to the gentleman, kind of said, I'm a little concerned about this young man here. And he said, well, has he done anything? And I was like, no. <laughs> so when I came back, the pastor on stage who had said he was going to repent of white supremacy was in that part of his prayer. And he did that. And the young man who was on the front row was looking over his shoulder. But as soon as that prayer came out of pastor's mouth about white supremacy, he shook his head back, like startled, like what? You know, and now my heart is racing. We have a greeting time right after the invocation where people who are visitors get a chance, we say hello. So a few people tried to go over and say, hi, new here, you know, just trying to, an older, a older man who happened to be visiting our church also felt a little uncomfortable. And I later learned he was a seminary professor and he was white and he thought, maybe I'll just sit by this young man and, you know? Yeah. Long story short, and literally this happened, and I know people who might be listening to the podcast kind of feel like, ah, really? But for me, it felt life-threatening. 
Um, oh, I, I think I think our listeners are right with you. I I I have not had uh, I've had direct uh, threats on my life to where someone walks in when I'm about to preach. So yes. I, I don't I don't yes. think you're telling an uncommon story. Yeah, I w- I just I could not, and I'm trying to think of how do I pull my emotions together enough to be able to preach the word of God. Well, what I did not know was during the greeting when people were kind of trying to figure out what to do, a few of the pastors huddled together and texted each other and said, "If he moves toward her, you get him. I've got Pastor Brenda, and you know, and these are not bodybuilder guys. These are just two women." <laughs> You know what I mean? (laughs) And they all came up with a plan. God forbid if anything had happened that day, they were going to put their bodies on the line to make sure that nothing happened to me that day when I stood in the pulpit. And so when I walked on stage, I looked out and I saw them sitting on the front row staring at me with eyes of steel that basically said, nothing's going to happen to you. There were two pastors on either side of him one woman and she had her arms crossed like I will dump him out of this chair I promise you <laughs> you're not going to get hurt today but I'm telling you that fear of gun violence in our country that fear of white supremacy and people coming in your church and we cannot say that won't happen there were nine people killed in bible study on Wednesday night who offered a person a bible and read it with them and so that, those are the kinds of things we're now grappling with. And so when we got back to the systemic issues we talked about earlier, so for a person to tell me they care about reconciliation and they don't take that my safety seriously, then I don't want to hear you talk about racial reconciliation because that's pie in the sky kind of kumbaya, and I'm not interested in that. If that's what you want to do, don't call that reconciliation. Do that because it helps you to feel better that you feel like you're being diverse, but that's not reconciliation. Reconciliation requires a commitment to to changing systemic issues that harm racial people's lives. That has to take take precedence over making friends. Yeah. No, I I think what you just shared is a palpable example. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking I'm a six foot three Australian white guy. Uh, I'm not an easily intimidated human, but I've had a few times either somebody's in my office and I've wondered if I can get out of my office safely yes. Yes. and it's been an active threat. And then I've had a couple of times when I get up to preach and think if that person walks in, I wonder if he's brought a gun because of an interaction during the week. Just a, a someone I know has a mental instability and has made a threat. I can't begin to imagine being someone other than a majority culture, pretty broad-shouldered guy you know like i think i think what you're describing is real in the context of of the material i work with this podcast you just beautifully described what we call acute anxiety yes acute anxiety is an actual threat that doesn't mean this young man really was a threat but he really could have been that's true um a, a less um personal example is when you're driving on the interstate and the person in front of you hits the brakes you think you're going to have an accident that, that's acute anxiety. I'm going to see if we can turn the conversation to chronic anxiety, which is a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Chronic anxiety is, is when you're not actually under threat, but your body thinks you are because you're not getting something you think you need. Mm-hmm. So in my case, Dr. Brenda, I have a chronic need to be understood. 
if somebody misunderstands me, misattributes my motives, I get so anxious. Yeah. Uh, but I'm actually not under threat. I'm going to live. Um, early in your reconciliation work, when you first got started, are you able to name for us something that you believed you needed that you didn't actually need, but it made you anxious? Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. Let me take a, 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 a try at it. And you tell me if I'm, I'm describing chronic stress. I don't know if I am or not. I do know the feeling, you know, I think I, I can relate to the feeling. Um, and, and I think maybe uh, if I search deeply and I'm trying to think as it relates to reconciliation, um, I think that the way I kept myself safe, and this is not unique to me. I think it's racial socialization, a certain way to behave in the world so that you're not misunderstood, that you're not misperceived, that you don't get in trouble, you know? And so the way dominant culture norms work, and that's not just in the United States, it's any place where there's a dominant culture, right? That's right. It's, it's in my country as well with Aboriginal people, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, that there's certain things you do and you don't do. And my mother raised us, the four of us, I have three other siblings. And so two girls, two boys. And my mom was kind of like the person who socialized her children. And it's almost every parent of color that I know, especially black parents, it's their attempt to keep us safe and to help us succeed. I just finished writing a book on Esther and um, and I'm so excited. So, yes, I'm telling everybody on your podcast. I just finished it and it'll come out next year. But I one I, of my favorite books of the whole Bible, by the way. Listen, I love that. And oh, my goodness. Mordecai says to his daughter, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Now, clearly, she's beautiful enough to win this contest or she wouldn't have been rounded up with all the beautiful young women who were going to be taken to the king. But he knows that her identity, her racial, her ethnicity could literally damage her success, her chances at success in a world apart from him. Every parent that I know of says the same kind of thing in some kind of way to their children. Don't don't use that name. Use your other name. Don't speak like that. Speak like this. Don't touch that. Don't touch this. So now to me as an adult, I think I learned how to navigate white evangelical space by being nice and being biblical and being theologically rigorous. I worked very, very hard that no one would be able to say that I was on some personal hobby horse, that I was just kind of pushing a political agenda, I wanted people to know that I had no other hidden motive other than trying to call the people of God to the word of God and to live into this value that I believe the church has been entrusted with. So the chronic stress for me was constantly being afraid that I would say something that would give people the impression that I was a black woman who had an agenda or that I, it was personal. So I, I worked hard at being nice. I worked hard at being non-threatening. I worked hard at being patient and being gracious. And at the end of the day, being on um, uh, alert in that way all the time is tiring. It's exhausting. But that's the price I paid to, to try to win and be a bridge person in white evangelical space. Yeah, I think you've, I think you've actually hit it exactly. It's, it's, um, what's interesting in this conversation is I'm not sure 
if it fits the category of something that you think you need that you don't actually need. Like in my case, the need to please people, I don't know that I'm paying as big a price as you would have been paying. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. There was an actual genuine, genuine cost. But I, I wonder, let's, let's play with it, Dr. Brenda. Could you put that into a, a phrase of here is what I believed I needed? Like as I'm hearing you, it sounds like you're saying I needed to shrink myself down to a size that was palatable mm. in order to have a voice? Sort of. I had to be prophetic, right? And I think in retrospect, I think the fact that I was a woman helped me because I think had I been a black man and been as prophetic as I am, I think being physically who I am, having the smile that I have, my ability to interject humor on occasion, I think all of that made me nice enough. So you could kind of hear the prophetic fiery edge of me, but that was always balanced with a physical, attractive presence, a smile, and a warm and genuine personality. Now, that wasn't an act. That really is who I am. But I was very conscious of making sure that that was the way I brought myself, you know, that I was constantly working to make sure that people knew I wasn't angry and I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. And I'm not. I truly am not. I don't think I recognize the price I paid to work that hard at it. When did that light bulb come on for you? When did you After say? After the election. Post-2016. Yes. <laughs> You're like, enough of that. Yes. Enough done. <laughs> we tried the nice approach and that didn't work. <laughs> so the election truly it devastated me. And I'm laughing just because I don't want to, I don't, it really, my personality is nice. So I really don't want to hurt anybody, but it devastated me, devastated me. And it was because of the type of person who said such very horrible things about people of color, about people with disabilities, about women. Um, nobody, nobody can make that okay. A person who was a public adulterer, all of that stuff. I mean, any other person who had the kind of lifestyle from any party, really, who had the lifestyle that we as Christians would say, this is the kind of trustworthiness that, that we are supposed to look for in leaders, period. We, we threw all of that to the wind. And that, that concerns me. That concerns me about the credibility of the church. All right. So you then decided enough. Uh, do you feel freer now? Yes. And part of that is older. I'm, I, my age has helped me. Hallelujah. So thanks be to God for every young person listening to this podcast. It gets better. Now, there are some things to youth that are wonderful. Amen. But I'm telling you, the confidence and the clarity and the conviction that has come to me and the lack of needing people's approval, I wouldn't trade this for anything in the world. So who wants to hear me? God bless you. I'll give you everything I've got. Anybody who doesn't can keep moving. It does not bother me at all, nor am I going to try to win them over. Okay. 
All right, let's get to the gauntlet. Here we go. All right, let's go. (laughs) Yep, let's do it. Um, I believe uh, chronic anxiety, not acute anxiety, when you're actually under threat, but chronic anxiety, the first place you can begin to notice it is in your body. Yes. And if you can learn to notice it in your body, you can begin to overcome it. So it typically shows up in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Where would it first begin for you? Tightening gut. I can get a headache too. There are times I get a headache. And so I'm pretty aware of my body. I'm grateful for that. I work out a lot. That's part of my care for myself. You know, I want to age well. I grew up in a family that had diabetes and some other things. And I just kind of decided I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want my body to, you know, I think there are things we can do. So I can tell when my body's a little off. And so I'll either get a headache. That's usually stress. If I'm, if I'm, um, my gut is is bothering me. I'm angry and don't want to don't know what to do with it. Okay, very good. Um, one of the sources of anxiety for every leader is when we don't know what to do, but we still have to do something. Uh, could you give us a story of a time when you didn't know what to do and what was going on under the surface in you? Oh gosh, so many. I think. Let's see. Let's see where I'll go with that. Um, when it comes to leadership, self-leadership is kind of like the big thing, right? Um, so when I first got called to the work of reconciliation, I, um, and you're talking about over-functioning, I had everything under this big umbrella called reconciliation, right? I had women's ministry under reconciliation, you know, gender equality. I had racial reconciliation. I had inner healing, like reconciliation with yourself. I had evangelism, reconciliation to God. I had a lot of stuff and it was fear. It was the fear that I had to have enough to offer so that people would want me to come and speak about things, you know? (laughs) So I was like this kind of all the stuff. So I hired somebody because when I first started this ministry, it was a nonprofit and you have to raise money. And I was moving with that model that I come from with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So I knew how to raise money by having donors. And so I thought I had to have a 501c3. I would raise money like I'd learned to do with InterVarsity and people would give to this vision. But I had to feel like the vision was big enough to give to. So I hired someone, a fundraiser to help me. And he said, you know, you're never going to raise money with something this broadly, you know, uh, uh, unable. You can't define it. It's so broad. You can't define it. Everybody thinks you do something else. And they're all right. You do all that stuff. You know, um, he said, you'll have to pick one of them and, um, and make it your sole focus. And he said, out of all the things you're doing, I only see one of these things that I don't think anybody else is doing as their sole focus. And that's racial reconciliation. I think if you would let everything else go and just focus on racial reconciliation, that you'd not only be good at it, I think you'd be great at it. You're passionate about it. I believe you could really go there and give your whole heart to that. It scared me to death. Because I thought to myself, I've left in a varsity. I am out on my own. I'm starting a ministry. And you're telling me to focus on racial <laughs> reconciliation. <laughs> and listen, I talked to a few people about it. And they told me, you'll never, ever get invited to speak about that all year long. Maybe on Martin Luther King's holiday, Cinco de Mayo, <laughs> but people don't talk about this all year long. So, Pastor Steve, I literally thought 
Um, and the anxiety of that was, was very great because my finances now was completely tied to this thing that I had started becoming successful. I literally didn't know what to do. And um, I was in knots for at least a month. Um, and can I even deepen it? I asked one person who said that he would not advise it because everyone that he knew of who made racial reconciliation, their focus, their only focus, he said that they're dead. He's, he started naming people and not just famous people, people that we had known, a person who had cancer, someone else who had a heart attack and, you know, marriages that broke up. And he just said, I don't want you to do it. I just don't want you to do it. And um, so it was not a light decision when I chose racial reconciliation as the focus of my ministry. And believe it or not, honestly, believe it or not, the scripture I heard back maybe 30 years ago now was um, if I perish, I perish from the book of Esther. Yeah. Well, you've come full circle on that day. I've come full circle. Yeah. I think another great source of anxiety for any leader is making a mistake in public. Like that's the problem with leadership is all our mistakes are public and it's vulnerable. Um, and I believe the ability to recover from a mistake is essential to leadership health. Could you share a time when you made a public mistake and how you recovered from it? Yes, sir. It was Urbana 2000, and I think it was 14,000 people up there. <laughs> you know, why fail in front of just a few people? <laughs> fail greatly in front of 14,000 people or 15,000. I think it was something like that. It might have been more. I was the speaker, one of the speakers at Urbana, which is, for those who don't know, is a major student conference, um, global conference for 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 student age, college age students from around the world. And I was one of the speakers at this global event. And I told the story about um, a man, Ricky Birdsong, who was shot and killed by a white supremacist um, who attended my church. He was the former head basketball coach at North Northwestern University. And I knew Ricky personally. He went to our church. And so he got shot and killed that weekend. And also a young Korean man was shot and killed that weekend. I mentioned both that both people were killed, but I only said Ricky Birdsong's name. I didn't say the young Korean person's name because I was scared. I was scared that I wasn't going to say it right. And so I just made that instant decision on stage. If you're going to butcher it, don't say it. So I just didn't say it, right? Well, the Korean delegation there saw that as a slight. Like I did not care as much about the death of the Korean person as I did of the African-American person. That truly wasn't the case, but that's how it was perceived. I did not want to go back on that stage. And I was hoping that, um, cause I, it was brought to my attention that people were upset with me. And I was hoping that the powers that be would say, hey, you had your chance to speak. It's everything is really scripted to the millisecond. People don't get a second chance. But unfortunately, <laughs> they gave me a second, they gave me two minutes. Somebody said, hey, you can take my two minutes. And I walked out on that stage. I looked like a sheep going to slaughter, really. I just, it was nothing pretty about it. I had no notes and I publicly apologized. And I said what I just told you, I was scared. I did not want to say his name wrong. And then I said his name that day, Wan Jun Yoon. And I said, I'm so sorry. I did not intend to offend anyone. God knows. And then I said something that I didn't even know I was going to say. 
I said, I think for the first time, I know how it feels to be white when you try so hard to get it right. And even when you're trying to get it right, you get it wrong. And white people palpably felt like I identified in a way that they had never heard a person do. Korean people bowed to me when I left the stage. I thought it was my worst moment. It was the beginning of people inviting me to speak around the country and around the world. I went to Kenya right after that, and I've been to other countries, and I was shocked that such a humble, broken two-minute apology would actually lead to such healing for me and for other people, too. I still get choked up. Oh, what an amazing story. Uh, you know, the thing that it just – my reaction is Paul says my God's power is made perfect in my weakness, and I think I tend to think, oh, I've outgrown that. You know, that was the old yeah. days. But that's a great example of how God's power really is manifest in our weakness. Yeah. More people remember the apology than the message the night before. They kind of go, oh, oh, you're the one that gave the apology. <laughs> so, yes, yes, I'm the one who gave the apology. But I'm telling you, I don't think anybody says you're the one who preached that message on whatever. I think they remember the two minutes. And I, I'm sure. I'm yeah. shocked. I'm sure that's true. All right, you're doing great. We have three questions to go. I believe you're going to make it. Um, and another theory in chronic anxiety is it's always contagious in groups. The, the most anxious person in any room always has the most power unless there's a differentiated or a non-anxious person in that room. Uh, could you give us a quick example of where you've seen anxiety uh, be contagious in a group? Yeah, um, I think... Um when people, when I'm in a room and I, be, and I can sense that someone's afraid that they're not going to get what they had to get said, said, I was just hosting a, a Zoom call um, and it was an organization that the people of color, the women of color in this organization felt like they weren't being heard. And as time began to wind down, one woman I could tell felt like her concerns were not being held, heard. So she just kind of took over the whole thing. And I had to keep just calling her name and saying, you know, I promise I'll let you speak. I promise I'll let you speak. But I had set ground rules for how we were going to be civil with each other. She was basically throwing those things to the wind. But I think it was out of her anxiety that she so desperately felt like she needed to be heard. She wasn't being heard. So she decided that she was just going to take it over. And it was one of those moments where I couldn't hurt her, but I had to stop her. And it was very, very difficult. Yeah, that's exactly a, a, a great, I think everyone's had that situation. Yeah. All right. Uh, two to go. So um, another source of anxiety, I think is just a simple imbalance of input and output, too much output, not enough soul care. Uh, Dr. Brenda, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Um, when I'm with people who've known me before I started preaching, before I became anybody famous or popular, when I go back to Trenton, New Jersey, where I'm just Brenda and people from high school are just happy to see me and my girlfriends. So I have a girlfriend's weekend every year with my Jersey girls and we have our own get together and they could care less that I'm a preacher. They could care less that I wrote a book. They just love me and I hang out with them and it gives me great joy to be with them. That's my sweet spot. Ah, oh, brilliant. 
Okay, final question. Uh, we all have life-giving people in our life. You just beautifully described an example of them. Could you give us uh, two or three characteristics of those people, whether you're talking about a specific person, but you're around life-giving people, you, you're always excited to be with them, you come away feeling lighter. What are just two or three things about them that make it that way? One, they live what they say they believe. I'm inspired by people who embody their truth. Um, I want to be like that. I love that. People who continue to keep growing. I'm inspired to keep growing. And so when I watch people keep growing, especially when they get older, that excites me. You know, I think that I am always too helped by people who tell me the truth. I really believe that the truth will make us free. And so I have some people who just will tell me the truth. My husband's right in that group, but they love me enough to tell me that truth. And that truth has made me better and better richer and richer, happier and happier, freer and more free. Wonderful. Dr. Brenda, what a treat. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for, thanks for giving us your time. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.